Hey friends, I'm Ashley. Hey you guys! I'm Lainey. And this is Haunted Real Estate. Today we will be visiting 620 Broad Street, Milledgeville, Georgia. This is the morbid history of Georgia's Central State Hospital, formerly known as Georgia State Lunatic, Idiot, and Epileptic Asylum, the United States' largest mental institution and possibly the largest the world has ever seen, at its peak housing between 13,000 to 17,000 patients. I'm sorry, did you say Idiot Asylum? Yes, which I will be very uncomfortable saying, but I kind of go with the names of for each time. It does change several times. That makes me a little upset because I feel like I qualify to be a patient there. <laughs> So let's first talk about the history of asylums. Predating the 1800s, no one really understood mental illness. For hundreds, maybe thousands of years, people believed mental illness was some form of religious punishment and was completely supernatural. So possession was really the only explanation for most people. In the 5th BC, Hippocrates, who was the father of medicine, was one of the few that did not believe mental illness to be supernaturally related. It's really hard to say. He was really the first of his time to work with mental health issues by helping people change uh, their environment and would administer medication. Probably herbs or something like that because I don't think they had Xanax 2,400 years ago. I wonder what they did use for calming nerves and things like that. I would guess like, like chamomile and lavender. Now I kind of just want some herbal tea. Yeah, that does sound relaxing. Yeah. So uh, treatment towards mental health only got worse going into the Middle Ages because everything revolved around religion and they really reinforced the idea that if you had mental health issues, you just needed God. Mental illness was usually in their minds caused by witches and demons. And with that thought in mind, uh, they were flogging, using bloodletting, ice baths, animal blood transfusions, and other strange and traumatic treatments. Jeez. I still can't get over the the herbs and God. Like if someone has, you know, a lot of murderers or mentally ill, so you're just going to give them a cup of hot tea and the Bible. Be like, yeah, I'm going to be better soon. I mean, I understand the thought that, you know, you can, well, I, I, I say I understand. Maybe not understand is the right word. Uh, Bible beating is not, not the only answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I know, I like I, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I, I don't push that on anybody else. But, you know, I, I could understand that, you know, bringing God into it helps. But there's multiple treatments that we have that are certainly useful. Well, from what I know already about asylums, I'm terrified about what you're going to share with us today. I think insane asylums are probably the scariest thing to me. I'm terrified. <laughs> Well, no one's locking you up, so don't you worry about that. If I'm very silent on this episode, guys, it's because I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> this is not... Yes, asylums were very scary back then, especially early 1900s into the 1960s. And, and we're going we're gonna to go into why that happened. So the idea that it was witches and demons and stuff like that, that really went on through into the 18th century. And there was a lot of stigmatism towards anybody suffering with these kinds of issues. Family members felt ashamed or embarrassed if they had a child that had really any type of disability, mental or physical. That's so upsetting. It is upsetting. And a lot of times people thought like God was punishing them by giving them some disabled child. And, and that is a really sad thought to have. And, and I hope nobody today thinks that. 
So by 1745, and again, these are going to be some names that I do botch because there's lots of doctors from all over the country. Um, 1745, Felipe Pignel. 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 I'm going to say, I think that's how I pronounce it because he's French. Was changing the approach to mental illness. He believed these illnesses were caused by environmental and psychological issues rather than supernatural, similar to Hippocrates, except... There had been some advancements in medicine by this time. I don't even think medicine advanced that much going into the 1800s because a lot of things they used were still going on 2,400 years uh, previous. So he wanted to change the way that people viewed mental health and he believed in creating a safe place to help heal patients. At this point, uh, we had more advocacy groups campaigning for healthcare facilities that catered to the mentally ill. It was something that was seemingly in high demand. But of course, mental health varies upon severity. Few people actually need to be hospitalized for mental illness. Most are treatable, especially today. Is that what PVL believed? What was his name? Sorry. Oh my gosh. And we lost any person that was ever from France that was ever going to listen to us. Sorry. Uh, Texas people aren't known for great French accents. I'm just not good at names in general. She said doctors and I'm thinking, this is Dr. Fraser Crane. (laughs) (laughs) We grew up with Dr. Fraser Crane growing up. So the first mental hospital in the U.S. was created in 1773 in Virginia, utilizing magnets to treat severe mental illness. And yes, magnets. Okay. They believed you could transfer energy using magnets from inanimate objects to people. And these are, so what I'm kind of talking about here are different thought processes that were going on at the time to kind of lead to the mental, I just lost my train of thought, the mental hospitals, I'm sorry. Thomas Kirkbride in the 1850s developed a more modern plan for mental hospitals. There were specific requirements under his plan. Uh, All hospitals had to be in rural areas with good land, both for aesthetics and for farming. Farming had to be a part of a patient's occupational therapy, especially because a lot of people were farmers back then. So it was a part of keeping you busy and helping to acclimate you to get ready to go out into the world. I'm probably sure that's how they were fed too, like growing their own. That is exactly right. Yes. A lot of these um, asylums ended up having their own farms. And we still have like today prisons are usually in rural areas. And see, it's funny to think that because I feel like prisons were put in rural areas to keep them away from society in case they escaped or something. But for mental institutions, it was literally because they felt like they needed fresh air, which everyone does. Everyone does. Yeah. So if you have any kind of mental disability, I mean, fresh, yes, it's only good can come from that. Fresh air is good for everyone. But most important part of the plan was that patients needed natural light and clean air. So there you go. So not a bad plan. It was the 1800s when states started asking for funding to create mental hospitals. When they finally got approval, this was a step forward, but in other ways was kind of a step backwards. Families felt that they finally had a place to take their challenging children, spouses, siblings. The downside was that it became very easy to take advantage due to the lack of rights people had back then. And you could basically institutionalize some because they behaved in a way that you simply did not agree with. And there I'm right back in the asylum. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Lainey's getting locked up several times. Um, This is where I'm going to get into women. Women got locked up a lot of time. And I say locked up because asylums are often treated like prisons. And we're going to also talk about that too. Oh my gosh, just like... uh being emotional on like your time of the month, people assumed women yes, were PMS, crazy. Yes, PMS is a reason that somebody, a woman, would get put into the <sighs> asylum. So you better slap on a happy face because if you show any kind of irritability or something, you're, you're going to be in trouble. 
Exactly. Bitch, you crazy. (laughs) So women were sent to asylums for depression, foul language, being too religious, not being religious enough, and silly things like not getting their uh, periods when they're supposed to, or as all the documents said, their menzies, and um, many other ridiculous justifications, and I will talk about that a little bit more later. I probably don't know because it's too specific a question, but does the doctor of these women send them to the asylum or their husbands monitoring their periods? I'm like, well, she's two days late. Let's send her away. Their husbands. Gah. Yeah. Um, I would hate to live in this time period. And you're asking a lot of questions that I will be answering. Okay. But yes, it, it is primarily their husbands that would send them. So with that, it's really women were the property of a man. And if that man's property wasn't acting the way that he wanted her to, he had a place to drop her off to get her fixed. So, this is the reason it didn't take very long for these facilities just to become overcrowded, understaffed, and severely underfunded. So, before we dive in, I want to make sure I do not paint all staff members as evil. In most of these institutions, most staff members had good intentions. A good example of this would be the lobotomy. Lobotomies were meant as a treatment for schizophrenia. It seemed to ease symptoms of the illness, but was actually causing brain damage uh, by making the patient more uh, zombie-like. In fact, lobotomies were so revolutionary for the time that a Nobel Prize was given to Igas Moniz. Oh my gosh. Sorry. A Nobel Prize? Yeah, a Nobel Prize. Yeah. (gasps) He's got goosebumps. Yeah. Sorry. And again, I probably pronounced his name wrong too, so I'm sorry for that. But yes, he won the Nobel Prize in 1949 for the leucotomy, the AK, the lobotomy. And today it's considered barbaric. So they thought they were doing good at the time by using the lobotomy because people came out calmer um, if they didn't just die during the surgery. So it seemed like it worked. And if you don't know what a lobotomy is, it's where they sever the connection between the brain and the prefrontal cortex. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, those were hard words for me to say. They basically drill through your skull and Um, disconnect it. Yeah, well they take like like a pick in your um oh they like do your, it through the nose right? yeah or yeah. your or your eye Boo. yeah so go look it up yourself don't uh, <laughs> don't don't look at pictures <laughs> uh one high profile case was rosemary kennedy younger se- uh, sister to john f kennedy uh, she was given a lobotomy in 1941 she suffered seizures and extreme mood changes After her lobotomy, she was never able to walk or talk again. So thankfully, medications came out shortly thereafter in the 1950s to help treat patients with schizophrenia. I did read that there were talks in taking away that Nobel Prize. Problem is, is that at the time, it seemed revolutionary. And as, you know, medical... uh, treatments advance and stuff like that do we really take away from people that at the time it seemed like that was a good thing it seemed like a good thing at that time well unfortunately there's like trial and error and i don't like to like think that people would you know risk people's lives to do that but but that is the the unfortunate side of science yeah that they can alter the brain somehow to quote fix someone yeah it's um it is sad and there's obviously there's been a lot of malpractice and crazy things that have happened to people um, in order to make progress. And and that is just the unfortunate side. Um, So when we talk about the history of these kind of places, understand that much of this was accepted as the norm for the time and not just evil doings of the medical staff. While there are bad people and there are bad people here in this story too, the downside to making progress in science is making a bunch of mistakes like Lainey and I just said. In the case, many of these institutions, they were trying to make medical advances with minimal funding, which led to many horrific things happening and a bunch of unnecessary deaths and a lot of neglect to the patients. 
So this brings us to Georgia Central State Hospital, or as it was called in its inception, Georgia State Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Assignment. <laughs> Asylum. See, I said assignment. I can't even say that whole name. It's a long one. Later, I just say L-I-E because I cannot, which is also an unfortunate, lie. yeah, lie um, acronym, but it changes name. So I kind of go with the name of whatever it was at the time. And then I tell you when it's changed. So. It was 1834 uh, that Georgia's Governor Wilson Lumpkin asked the state legislator to allocate funds to those with mental disabilities. Keeping in mind, this is the Bible Belt, as we call the United States, um, more religious than most. Um, There was still a stigma with mental illness and the possibility that this was some religious punishment or possession. Georgia's Senate and House were not quick to give a yes to these requests. It took a few years, but the legislature finally agreed into the creation of Georgia State LIE asylum uh, and the board of trustees was formed in 1941 so it took 1834 to 18 did i just say 1941 I'm going to say 1841 if I said that wrong. I also want to stop you real quick. I don't think you should shorten it to L-I-E. I think you should try to say it faster and faster <laughs> each time you have to say it. Okay. Plus, I really just love the idiots in it. I just I can't get over it. Okay. We're not a fan of calling anybody mentally challenged that, just so you know. I'm literally just talking about myself, and I didn't know that, that the word idiot was ever used for anything else besides, like, silly person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We use it regularly to just talk about someone being a goofball, but that's not how it was used then. So it is to me, no disrespect to anybody. Yes. I hope I didn't offend anyone. So I'm sorry if I did. I'm an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So Milledgeville, Georgia, once the capital became the site for the new hospital purchased at the sum of $4,000, the state got 40 acres with a building that had five fireplaces, a vineyard and orchard, a well, there was land for farming that later ended up being used to also expand the hospital. There was a basement with 20 rooms and a kitchen. The remaining four floors had 23 rooms. Men were housed on the first two floors and women on the top two. This facility was considered completely state-of-the-art. This was a unique institution because it was the first to treat all three ail- ailments. So that is the lunatic, idiot, and epileptic part of the name. So to break that down, lunacy would be a disease of the mind. Another word would be insanity. And it may not be something that you were born with, but you were born like or developed over time. Idiot would be referring to somebody with an intellectual disability, uh, something you were likely born with, and it's a person with a lower IQ. Epileptic or epilepsy would be referring to seizures, which were very misunderstood, especially hundreds of years ago, and more so because they always considered epilepsy or having the seizures. 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 Sorry. Supernatural rather than biological. So the two uh, ways a patient could become, I'm sorry. So the two ways to become a patient of the Georgia State Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Asylum was to be sent by the state, which would be free room and board or admitted voluntarily or a family member sends you, which would cost $100 a year. When Georgia's legislature agreed on funding the hospital, the intention was that people pay for their own care or unless you were sent by the state and then return to society once they were cured. How much was $100 back then? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, it would definitely be thousands of dollars today. Hang on. Because I think of like those like rehabilitation centers that are like $50,000 a month today. No, I think I think 
that might only be like a thousand dollars. Hang on, let me look. Okay, so definitely not fifty thousand dollars. It was about thirty-three hundred dollars, which for a stay at a mental hospital, that's actually not that expensive. Um, so a hundred dollars a year back in the eighteen forties. So the government would pay for people that would get the mandatory stay. So that would be like violent criminals or somebody who would be considered a danger to themselves or others. But unfortunately, this is not going to be the case at all. Few people people ever really went back into society. So November 1st, 1842, the hospital opened its doors. The governor issued a proclamation in the newspaper announcing the new asylum was prepared to take in, quote, lunatics, idiots, epileptics, or insane persons, end quote. Um, And I don't really know what the uh, difference is between a lunatic and an insane person in 1842. I think they're the same. Seem like the same. So for the first couple of years, the superintendent was David Cooper. There were approximately seven other staff members and slaves. The first patient was Tillman B. And that's what all the articles say. Just Tillman B. Just the letter B. I never even thought. I mean, of course there were slaves back then. But I never even thought that they were brought into just... <laughs> That's a really attractive <laughs> sound. To like essentially hurt other people. Like So David Cooper did have slaves working the property. Sometimes they did work with patients. We don't know a whole lot about the early we know a little bit about the early on patients. I'm gonna talk briefly about it, but there's really not a whole lot of information. Um, so I don't know how closely slaves actually worked with people. I know there were attendants in the hospital that were slaves. I think a lot of them were primarily there to construct buildings, tend to the land, that kind of well, thing. Like and the chores, like laundry. Right. But slavery did not last long at this hospital. Of course, it's Georgia, so it is going to last at least until the Civil War, because keep in mind, this is pre-Civil War time. Um, so Tillman B. arrived December 15th, 1842. He was a white male in his 30s. From its opening until 1866, they were a whites-only facility. He was brought in being pulled by a wagon by his relatives and his wife. Tillman was considered, quote, destructive and violent, end quote. Within six, month of, six months of his stay, he died of... Again, quote, I say that word a lot. Quote, maniacal exhaustion, um, which was associated with bipolar disorder or depression. You'd have extreme exhaustion, uh, but have no ability to go to sleep. As one interview interviewee put it, uh, he crazed himself to death. So under David Cooper's leadership, the property was maintained by slave labor. Slaves constructed the building's landscape. Like I just said, uh, they built a wall around the property um, and they did tend to patients. Then, in 1845 until 1879, the hospital superintendent was Dr. Thomas Green. He was very involved with the patients and staff members. Tom Green. Sorry. Oh, yeah, that is Tom Green. (laughs) Old Tom Green uh, was highly involved. He would even sit and eat with his patients. He would not allow uh, chains and ropes to restrain any of his patients, which was previously allowed. And by 1849, he would not allow slaves to work at the hospital. Work, but not get paid. Is there Um, any reason that we know of? I don't know. I think, no, I don't know. Anything I am about to say is just a guess. If I had to guess, he didn't want slave labor at the hospital. I don't know what his political thoughts were, but he did go and then hire an all-white staff. So I don't think he was necessarily looking to help people of color, but... He wanted all-white people and probably people who would hide and cover any bad deeds seen, like, probably, like, his own circle. Yeah, um, I mean, by all accounts, though, he was a humane doctor. As far as his doctoring, again, was he a racist? Could have been. 
I don't know a lot about him. Well, that's good. He was humane. Old Tom Green. Daddy, would you like some sausage? Daddy, would you like some sausages? What are you talking about? What is that from? A uh, road trip with Tom Green? <laughs> No. Is that not I road trip? That's not on road trip. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm gonna... Okay, well, Lainey looks that up. Um, this is why I'm going to the uh, idiot asylum. <laughs> Scheduled me for tomorrow at two. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, so he was considered humane and at, by all accounts, he also seemed like he wanted to help his patients. Because Freddie got fingered. Sorry. Oh, God. I the saw it really one ever. time and hated myself <laughs> for watching it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I'm sorry. Okay. We're talking about serious stuff. I'll stop talking about dumb stuff. <laughs> so he was considered more progressive than his predecessor. It was also common under his leadership, and he wouldn't be the only one here, uh, to give more attention to the wealthier patients. Uh, one wealthy patient even stayed in his own residence and married into his family. Uh, so by 1847, they built a second building just to house women. And by 1858, they completed the center building, currently known as the Powell Building, which is the oldest building on the property today. It looks like a White House. Is that the main entrance that you see when you look it up? The uh, stairs leading up? and like it's a, It looks like it's a white building that looks like the White House. Oh, okay. It's just smaller than the White House. Cool. Um, 1866, the facility opened to all races, but they did segregate patients because it's 1866 and it's just post-Civil War and it's the South. In fact, for a skinny minute, Union General... Skinny minute? Skinny minute, yeah. <laughs> Our Casey and I's um, Spanish teacher used to always say that. That's I'll be with a, you in a skinny minute. See you in a okay. skinny minute. Yeah, I've never heard that. It's one of those things that like really stuck in my mind. I don't know where that's from. I'll give you a fat minute. Right. Well, then what's a skinny minute? Are they all minutes? It's like a quick minute. like, like her But are they all 60 speed. seconds? They're all 60 seconds, yes. Okay. But, well, then I don't understand. Well, it's just... You know, people make up their own words. In fact, for a skinny minute, Union General Sherman uh, and his troops camped on the grounds during the war on their way to another destination. The hospital superintendent had to convince the Union soldier to spare the hospital. So the facility has seen some history. Once the war ended, the number of patients grew rapidly. And as many suffered all sorts of issues related to the war, um, PTSD and things like that, by 1872, the ratio of doctor to patients was about one doctor to a hundred and 12 patients. Jeez. Yeah. So the hospital continued to grow in patients and in size. Added to the hospital was a chapel, a train depot, multiple buildings that were all mostly three stories on the property, a greenhouse, tennis courts, baseball fields, and at one point, the largest kitchen in the world. Ooh, I love good kitchen talk. Yeah, well, that's the end of kitchen talk. Oh, man. <laughs> well... Huska didn't have a kitchen, and this one has the world's largest kitchen. Yeah, so there you go. I'm gonna need all of your stories to have a little kitchen food insert. Okay, yeah, don't know how many stoves or anything that it stoves, um, ovens, I don't know. There were homes built on the property later on for nurses and then for doctors and staff members and eventually even had its own power plant, which is pretty oh. common with a lot of these asylums. So the facility basically became its, became its own little town where people were packed in like sardines. So many of the buildings had porches for outdoor time, but were closed in with metal fencing and bar on the windows. Uh, still some of that you can see today. As the facility continued to grow, the spaces got tighter and tighter. Communities began sending any unwanted or unruly citizens to Central Hospital, which continued to exacerbate things. By 1877, very few patients had families even paying for their care anymore, so the burden fell 
to the state of Georgia, which we know ends up being a huge problem and lasts for about 100 years or 100 more years from this point anyway. That's so sad. It is sad. It's like throwing away people that you just don't understand. Yeah, you're discarding people and then there's no money to take care of them. So it's an all around really shitty situation. In 1879, Dr. Powell, which is where the Powell building comes from when they renamed that building. Uh, Dr. Powell was the superintendent of the hospital. He segregated black patients into underground tunnels when they ran out of space. Wow. Until they could get more buildings added. Uh, This was also the same year that they changed its name from Georgia Lunatic Idiot and Epileptic Asylum. Last time I'm going to say that to Georgia State Sanitarium. Much more pleasant sounding. Yes, and then that name is also going to change. So come 1896, Central State became a nurse training program. Not not the whole place, but they had a nurse training program down in the basement, um, which was a big deal because in 1896, there were very few opportunities for women to work and very few opportunities for education. So part of the basement was used to give lectures, provide training in bed making and bathing patients. This is where all the nurse ratchets came from, got their education. No, well, that's like a, not a hundred years later. What is that? Like 80 years later? 18, okay. 1870s, 1970s. Yeah. Which, you know what's weird when you watch that movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Mm-hmm. Nurse Ratchet is like a very small part of that movie. Oh, I know. For sure. That's so weird because people make such a big deal about Nurse Ratchet, and I thought she was this like horrible, heinous woman and then I go to watch it and I'm like, she's barely a character. It's, yeah, it's very small. It's really all around Jack Nicholson and his like circle of people he's with. Right. But what is sad about that movie is really again, highlighting what happens sometimes in mental hospitals and he got a lobotomy and he just completely it's just so sad. forgot who he was. It is sad. The show Nurse Ratchet was all about Nurse Ratchet, obviously. Yes. Which, it, yeah, which was interesting because it definitely didn't paint her as this like crazy woman so you continuously wait for that season of like when does she become crazy? Because I actually didn't watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest until after I watched that. Same. Yeah. It really got me interested. And then I was like, what the heck? That character's like barely in this movie. I mean, you yeah. get like 10 minutes with her and then that's it. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't very great, but. She wasn't great, but she wasn't like horrible. But yeah. people use Nurse Ratchet as like a mean thing to call yeah. a nurse. Like you're mean to patients and. Well, the name is just kind of. I'd almost think Nurse, nurse Ratchet. From Nurse Jackie. I almost think Nurse Jackie is worse. Because she was definitely, like, drug-induced all the time. Well, Sarah Paulson did a great job. She's amazing. Yeah, she's an amazing actress. I know. I love her. And I'm thinking of the Asylum season of American Horror Story. Yeah, that's a good one, too. That's fascinating. And that, um, and I'm going to say it later, but it's over Penhurst penitentiary. So the the hospital required all nurses to be, quote, young, bright, and intelligent, end quote, and also had to have the ability to read and write. And regularly flowing periods. Yes, you're, yeah, you better have a regular menzies. Uh, Only three years into the program, they expanded it to teach nurses how to assist in surgeries. Nurses had to wear many hats at the asylum. They woke up at 5 a.m. with the patients. They had to bathe the least, uh, the less physically abled patients first. They aided in surgeries. They cleaned the floors. They kept the wards clean. They kept up with the records for the hospital. They supervised all the patients that also worked to maintain the property. These women were on duty 16 hours a day. Oh my goodness. Their shift was 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. Oh, that's not a way to live. No. Do you know if they had any days off? 
Probably not. Uh, I don't know that they had any days off. And most of them actually lived at the asylum. And so at nine o'clock when their shift would end, they'd have to go into their room and they would be locked in the room for their safety because they were sharing the building with the patients. Oh, so lonely of a life that is. Yes. And so this is going to be a huge struggle because they're going to have a hard time maintaining nurses. Um, 1906 wages were very low for nurses and the living conditions were below par because they were already rough on the patients. So they're definitely rough on people who aren't patients and who are working there. Oh my gosh, did a bunch of nurses transition into patients because I feel like I would go crazy working out life. There is an interesting story I'm going to talk about that's uh-huh. not nurses transitioning into patients. Um, I'm not even going to tell you right now because I'm going to get there. I'm so excited. <laughs> So one of the ways they tried to alleviate this problem with nurses not wanting to work at the asylum, so they were either quitting or, you know, they just couldn't keep anybody on staff for very long, was by creating their own housing um, so that they wouldn't have to share a building with the patients and get locked in at nine o'clock. This would allow them more independence and some kind of life outside of the hospital, but it would take about 20 years to get a nurse dormitory. World War One changed funding and many people shuffled around to either go into war or take a federal position that just simply paid more. So once the dormitory was set to go, there were 198 beds that were vacated by nurses, easing some of the overcrowding, and now uh, patients can go into that space. So the nursing school at Central State closed uh, its doors in 1947 after 37 years. After that, um, this did still provide a training program, but it was still the only mental health facility in Georgia. So any nurse in Georgia that wanted that specific training would still find themselves at this hospital. So while many patients did have legitimate health issues that required medical care, side note, I need to go back. I think I said after 37 years, but it started before that, like 1896. So I don't know where I just pulled 37 years from. So just ignore that. They closed its doors in 1947. Um, I think that was my own typo. So while patients did have legitimate issues that required medical care, you can really see the attitudes of the time when people were getting sent there for reasons like interracial dating. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Interracial marriages weren't even legal in the United States until 1967. So wild. So keep in mind, again, we're in Georgia. We're in the South. It's in the Bible Belt. So it's tensions are heavier there. Um, Not just Georgia, but the Bible Belt area more than really anywhere else in the United States. Others were sent to the asylum for, quote, deviant sexuality, which was just another word for homosexuality. Um, Schizophrenia would also get you sent on a long-term stay at the hospital, which was also misunderstood and misdiagnosed. Uh, Schizophrenia really encompassed a lot of things today, uh, such as autism. Autism itself wasn't even discovered until 1911. So you would have people there, you know, being sent maybe under autism, but they're classifying it as schizophrenia. There's lots of other things they classified as schizophrenia. Wow. Families would bring them in because they didn't know how to properly care uh, for their family members or whomever it was. But to be fair, the hospital really didn't know either. And it might not come as a shock that these doctors were not psychiatrists. Patients were rarely, if ever, seen by an actual psychiatrist. Oh my gosh, you'd think that would be a thought of first. Like, if you, I'm going to develop a mental hospital. Yes, um, that you need to have psychiatrists, yes, counselors, all on duty. Advisors. Yes. Um, And a big part of their patients were also dementia patients. Oh, no. I don't even want to think about that. People with Alzheimer's and dementia were there. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 
Well, I do completely, and we've had family members that have suffered from both Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, I understand the need for medical assistance, but at this time, um, being sent there is really just going to make somebody deteriorate a lot faster um, because the, the I say the lack of care. Again, it doesn't always come down to the specific doctors and nurses not caring for them. It's just they were over capacity, not trained for this. They didn't have any psychiatrists or counselors. Really, you're just talking about medical doctors, um, and some of them weren't even medical doctors. Oh, and those people are just so in and out of memory. Like, they might completely forget. Completely forget where they are. terrified and... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. No, it's a terrible situation. It's a terrible situation. Um, Another reason for getting sent there would be chronic fatigue, which um, they might just consider you lazy. Um, And we know today, like, chronic fatigue might not just be because you're lazy. It could be because you're low iron or something else that has an explanation. Um, But of course, back then, maybe you're pregnant. Yeah, (laughs) it's completely not understood then that chronic fatigue might actually have a medical reason behind it and not just laziness. Um, Anxiety and or insomnia would also be other reasons. And insomnia, we know, can trigger all sorts of other issues like depression. Um, Another reason for being sent would be um, being Irish. Being Irish was pretty rough in the late 1800s and early 1900s in America. Irish Americans were very much discriminated against during that time. Wow, I love the Irish. You know, if Hitler was in this time, though, like all the Jews would be going to an asylum instead of concentration. Yeah. So actually, actually, it, it's really interesting everything you bring up because it's about to be something I talk about. There's a lot of eugenics involved in here. Can you tell uh, that we're sisters and we're on the same yeah, wavelength? She kind of just reads my mind, but also kind of ruins it at the same time. I'm, I'm like, ruiner. damn, I'm about, to- <laughs> I'm about to get there. <laughs> So Irish were considered either too Catholic, so too religious, or too lazy, or too drunk. And that's how most Irish people were portrayed in the U.S. at the time. And I'm sorry for that. I love you, Ireland. Yes, we love you, Ireland. Um, and there, so there was a disproportionate number of Irish Americans in, in asylums as well. So Alan Judd from the Atlantic News says, uh, patients were admitted for intemperance, religious excitement, domestic unhappiness, ill health, and jealousy, One early patient was described as rather idiotic. Of the first 50 patients, 29 died without ever leaving. But you said domestic unhappiness, like I want a divorce, so you go to the asylum? Yeah, that could get you an asylum for sure. For sure, especially if you were the woman that said that. I mean, I know divorces aren't a thing then, but yeah, okay. Continue. Um, Also, he said uh, records list causes of death as dysentery, chronic diarrhea, convulsions, and um, general paralysis, which... I'm sorry, I don't even know what general paralysis is because it almost sounds like random paralysis. And terrifying. Yeah. So whatever general paralysis is, uh, that could be uh, a byproduct of a lobotomy. Um, I don't know. So just eight of the... first 50 patients were pronounced cured. And if you were growing up in Georgia, it was common for parents to threaten to send you to Milledgeville because it was known to be scary, especially to children. And the only requirement to be sent to an asylum were two signatures. But to get out, you needed eight. So this was... From who? Who are they? Anybody. It could be family members. They could send you. 
or somebody from the state if you were like regularly getting in trouble or something like that. So to get out, it would take eight signatures. So it was very easy to put somebody in an asylum, but it was not easy to get out. But this was especially true for women. So if you were an Irish woman at the time, you would be having a tough time here. Other crazy reasons a woman might land herself in central state was uh, one, trying to leave her husband. Clearly she was insane if she tried to leave, but he could leave her without any kind of problem. That's great. Mm -hmm. It's probably... It was probably one of those abusive situations too. And you're just like, asylum mm. or maybe die. Right, and it could be the man that actually has the issues, but if the woman wants to leave him because he's abusive or whatever the situation is, she can't do that. Super. Um, another one is postpartum depression, which <gasps> when you take into account uh, that women were having more children back then, even though women, uh, the ch- child might not survive childbirth or very old, that didn't change the fact that it has a hormonal effect on the woman or the mother, especially between the 18 and 1900s. So postpartum depression was very common and many many women would try to fake it to not be put in the hospital or would try and just fake it to get out of the hospital. So that makes me so sad. Yeah, none of them were really getting any kind of help that they needed. It was more of a like, just scary to think about you getting put in an asylum because you were going through a rough time and postpartum depression is still today very common and we don't have nearly as many kids but imagine a woman having nine ten kids even if like four or five of them you know survive to adulthood yeah that's a woman is still having that many children and going through that many hormonal changes and stuff like that. So it's a very sad and scary situation. To that's, yeah, that's hard to think about. And it, postpartum can last for a long time. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially if you don't treat it. You said I wasn't going to cry on this podcast. Okay, sorry. No, I didn't. You didn't say, am I going to cry? And I said, no, you won't cry. I think you said you better not cry, actually. <laughs> I'm talking about crying. Okay. Um, three, three, promiscuity. If you uh, were not considered a modest woman, you could be admitted. Um, like we said before, PMS. Don't show any kind of irritability towards your husband because he might just lock you up. Uh, flash your boobies on the street out of Oh, out yeah. Of a no, car no Mardi Gras <laughs> Nolens for you. You might end up in the asylum afterwards. Next would be uh, jealousy. Uh, when that Betty next door starts flirting with your man best not show any kind of emotion because he could just use that as cause for admittance to the hospital oh my gosh i know that can't look good that has to seem like you want to have an affair with the girl next door if yeah you admit your wife to an asylum over it if that is documented that means this had to have happened like a Probably a couple of times. Yeah. That's insane. Well, that's what I'm saying. It does not take much for a a husband to put a wife into an asylum. We're all very lucky. We live... I mean, the world is still crazy today, but we have rights and this is... Yes. This is all nuts At least some some of these mistakes um, have been corrected. Another one would be rejecting your spouse. You must be out of your mind. Lock her up if she doesn't want to put out. And there are several other reasons, but to suffice, suffice it to say, many women were brought into the wards for very normal women things. At its height, um, the 
doctor to patient ratio was one doctor to as high as two to 300 patients. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So patients would go extended amounts of time without proper care and were extremely neglected. And while it may seem like the doctors were being irresponsible, the hospital superintendents were often begging the state for funding because um, they had people continuously coming in, almost no one coming out, and little money being provided uh, for anything even close to proper care. I mean, I can't even imagine 300 patients to one. I mean, our hospitals were crazy just a couple years recently right, with COVID-19. COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we probably had more doctors, I would hope. Um, it wasn't one to 300. Yeah. And not everybody was like staying at the hospital, but. But that was nuts. Like one of my friends, uh, dad had a heart attack and he was waiting in a hallway just you know, because of COVID patients, which it was just, it's just sad that we were ever in that situation. I can't imagine. Yeah. So these people just neglected. Yeah. So you have them going extended amounts of time without ever being seen by anybody. Um, they probably get fed uh, to an extent, but there are several reports from many different asylums of patients walking around naked. They don't have anybody that's able to to properly care for them. Um, if you weren't crazy, actually needed help when you got in, you probably became <laughs> mentally... Cha- uh, I- <laughs> Yes, if you didn't if you didn't have like legitimate issues going in, you probably created yourself a lot of issues afterwards because you're not being properly cared for, you're being cooped up, you're probably not getting proper outdoor time, so you're not socializing. Um, there's so many different issues that it would cause just being there. Thank you for uh, filling in for me there. Yeah, Lainey lost her words. I'm, I'm off. <laughs> This just baffles me. I really hate talking about asylums because it's just, it's so upsetting. It is upsetting. And and honestly, it is uncomfortable. So some of these superintendents would report the conditions to an extent. They, of course, don't want to make themselves look bad. Um, so some of this was reporting. Uh, they were import- reporting some of the inability to properly care for people because they weren't being funded. And then overcrowding, of course, which overcrowding started to cause other major itch- issues such as unsanitary conditions and infectious diseases going around. So tuberculosis was widespread at the time and extremely difficult to contain at the hospital. 121 patients died from tuberculosis in 1904. They were, um, there was also contaminated water coming into the facility that was spreading typhoid fever. So even though the state half-heartedly attempted to limit the amount of patients going in, counties uh, within the state of Georgia continued sending patients anyway. So the quality of care care continued to just decrease. By 1910, the hospital was making changes to become more self-sufficient since funding could not really be counted on. They were planting their own crops to tend to, um, which again was part of their occupational therapy as well. In 1927, Dr. Sackle, um, he didn't actually work at this hospital, but he did discover insulin shock therapy. So basically you would overdose a patient on insulin and they would go into a coma, which he accidentally discovered by ODing a patient of his, which um, when that patient patient woke up from the coma, 
Uh, they had improvements in their mental state, as he said. Sorry, my dog is in the room and she's sneezing. So from this one patient, it was theorized that it was a great technique in dealing with patients with schizophrenia. Just go ahead and overdose them on insulin. 1929, this is right before the Great Depression. The hospital is already over capacity at 5,000 patients. To deal with the abundance of patients, they began regularly using in insulin shock therapy as a means to temporarily relieve, uh, get temporarily from patients, but also in the hopes that they'd wake up cured. I mean, how often did that actually work? Not often. Was it just that one guy it happened to work on? Yeah, it, it did not happen very often. And they do, uh, to my knowledge, they do not use this anymore. I'm sure this is very dangerous. That sounds like it. Yeah. I'm I mean, we know that this, uh, well... We know with diabetes and things today, which again was like not fully understood back then, that there's a lot of issues with insulin and you don't yeah. want to spike those numbers. At this point, the hospital went under another name change, removing sanitarium and was now Milledgeville State Hospital. 1934, they began to use electroshock therapy. Oh no! This, this was to help patients treat their mental illness and is actually still in use today. For some extreme cases, they would put a patient with schizophrenia in an insulin-induced coma and then give them electroshock therapy. Holy crap. Silver lining, I guess they were already in a coma, so you don't feel it as much, but My they just do a lobotomy while they're under two. Yeah, it's, it's shock them to recovery. Um, they were also performing involuntary sterilizations if somebody was considered, quote, mentally defective. Very controversial. It's um, very scary, especially considering the amount of women that are in there for dumb reasons. Now they can't be mothers. Yeah, it, it usually was not for those types of reasons. Um, but if you think back to the time of eugenics, which was going on in a lot of the Western world, unfortunately, especially Nazi Germany, using people's race or disability or something like that as a means to consider them defective, basically. Um, Georgia was no different. Doctors highly encouraged sterilization as humanitarian. Uh, one doctor was quoted saying that this was a way to suppress the poor white trash. So in his mind, it was really like saving the government money, money by preventing them from having kids, then you wouldn't have kids. That we're going to need to go into the asylums yeah. or need to get government funding in some kind of way. Um, still, by 1957, the superintendent, Thomas Peacock, said sterilization was, quote, protecting patients from psychotic episodes induced by pregnancy, shielding children from mental trauma by psychotic parents. So how come, if this was ever a thing, and I feel like we've talked about this before, but like serial killers who have a bunch of kids and like leave them or you know abuse their kids like why was it why were they sterilized <laughs> but these people are like I um, just there's no right answer i know every person right we go through our things where we're like wow they should be sterilized but like who is really able to determine that really we, no none I mean, of yeah. us should be able to make that decision because then you get into a Nazi Germany situation where who is anybody to decide who should be sterilized and who isn't? I mean, so ultimately it comes down to it's just wrong. So they continued this until the 1960s after sterilizing approximately 3,300 patients. 
So by the end of the Great Depression, um, around 1940, the hospital had over 9,000 patients. Wow. And I didn't find it, but I would guess that being in a state hospital, that was not the worst option for people during the Depression. So many people were homeless during that time, that at least if you were in a state hospital, you would have some sort of shelter and maybe a meal if you got admitted. So I'm guessing numbers spiked during that time because of that, but I I can't definitively say that. Absolutely. Um, 1946, the Mental Hospital Act was passed. This was post-World War II, and as we know, many of our veterans um, have suffered a lot of PTSD and other mental illnesses due to the trauma they endured during um, the time they served our country. This legislation led to the federal government taking on a larger role in mental health treatment. Um, Again, there's a lot of like good and bad to everything here, and I'm going to really talk about that at the end. Um, By the 1950s, there were over 12,000 to 13,000 patients um, in the hospital, making it officially the largest mental hospital in the world. And at this point, the hospital is so desperate for help that some of the, quote, doctors were actually patients. What? Yeah. So, so the ones just like having a bad period were patients, but then when they're off their period, they're doctors. Like how you keep going to the period. Uh, yeah, I don't know which ones exactly, uh, but yes, people were picked out of the ward, like when they were about to be released, maybe, or something like that. They picked them to help other patients because that's how desperate they were, which is really not a good idea. So, yeah, you have former patients treating other patients. Uh, which just goes to show you how truly terrible the overcrowding was. By 1960, there were over 200 buildings on the property, and that had now spread from 40 acres to 1,750 acres. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it's massive. But even imagining that amount of people still in 1,750 acres, I mean, that's still a good amount of people per acre. I mean, obviously it's not people per acre. That's not how we're looking at it, but it's still a lot. Yeah. Considering you needed that acreage for like farming. Um, there's a huge cemetery there. I mean, there's towns with less, there's a lot of towns with less than 9,000 people. Shut your ass right now. Cause my next sentence is at this point, there were more patients in the asylum (laughs) than in the town of Milledgeville was literally my next (laughs) sentence. My ass is shut. I'm sorry. (laughs) God, you keep doing that to me. Constant spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, So the conditions of the hospital were really uncovered in 1959 by Jack Nelson, who worked for the Atlantic Constitution. He won a Pulitzer for his investigative reporting on Central State Hospital. Nelson was a muckraker for his time. He had written several pieces in his lifetime. He he died in 2009. Um, But in this particular piece, Jack Nelson said a staff doctor, Zeb Burel, who was working as a paid consultant for a pharmaceutical firm, had been using experimental drugs on mental patients without their knowledge or the knowledge of their relatives or guardians. Cool. Um, Nelson checked the records of the hospital and found that there were only 48 doctors tending to now 15,000 patients. Oh my gosh. And at the beginning, I said that there was up to 17,000 patients. That's because not everything was documented correctly because, again, overcrowding and understaffing. So um, there were, I'm sorry, so there were 48 doctors to 15,000 patients. 
12 of those 48 doctors had a history of alcoholism and drug addiction. And like we had said, kind of related, kind of not related. Some of these doctors actually had been patients at treating, being treated for alcoholism or drug addiction from the hospital themselves. Um, but some of those were actually doctors, uh, which then led to the discovery that several staff members were drunk and high while on the job. Uh, he also checked the accounting I mean, records. It has to be. I mean, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> uh, that's terrible, but it's also a, a terrible work situation. Yes, I'm definitely not advocating to be under the influence as a medical professional. No, please God, no. That, again, is a Nurse Jackie situation, which that yeah. show gave me so much anxiety. I mean, it's a tough job, and you have to be a very strong, tough person yeah. to do it. Yeah. I know I'm not capable of doing it. No, so. especially stuff like this. Um, the ER, I mean, all uh, all that is, uh, they all have their own challenges, but I just think some of these, like, more urgent, can't ever let your guard down positions, like being in a yeah. mental facility. And you have to not only be able to perform surgeries and, you know, give people medications, you have to be able to defend yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. Just, that's a big part a of that. Um, I did watch an interview of a nurse that um, worked at this hospital, but um, in the late 90s to early 2000s. I mean, you couldn't even carry pens or pencils because there were known stabbings from patients to nurses or doctors. Um, That's not... Wait, this place was open when I was born? Yes. And actually, there's still um, a couple of buildings remaining today. But again, you're, you're getting me ahead of myself. Ew. So they also checked the accounting records and found that there were kickbacks given to doctors and state officials, which were furthering the money issues. This created an average expense for a patient to only $2.52 a day for room and board, food, and medical expenses. Today, that still only equates to $20 a day. And again, when you're talking about the medical expenses, room, board, and food should be more than $20 a day. He also found that nurses um, were performing surgeries unsupervised and lacking the proper training. Um, one of the surgeons on staff would actually take some of the tools at the state hospital and perform surgeries at a for-profit hospital, leaving few tools and instruments for his nurse partner to utilize when performing these um, surgeries she was not supposed to be performing. Um, his article that came out ended up ruffling a lot of feathers. Uh, the board of trustees was were pissed. The politicians were pissed. Uh, basically, because this is primarily government funded, it just made everybody look bad. And literally, Jack Nelson got punched in the face several times by one of the doctors at one of these meetings. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they were pissed at him. And this is not the only time some sort of muckraker... Um, really pisses off a bunch of people. That is a tough job, this investigative reporting, because you're calling people out and holding them accountable. And um, people don't like being held accountable sometimes. And so him getting punched to the face also got uh, published in the paper. Um, Jack Nelson's uh, mug was there, which on a good note, um, because people start started seeing him literally come under attack over the reporting, many others started giving him information about other happenings within the hospital and signed affidavits swearing to their testimony. Um, he was also given a tip that black patients would receive a surgery and then they would get shipped to a whole other clinic uh, because they were not allowed to recover in the same building. What? Yeah. Which, I don't know if you know this, but like right after getting surgery, you shouldn't go like hop in a vehicle and yeah, you can't move be around and stuff around like after that. Your, anything's some of these, in your body. Yeah, some of these could be major surgeries. I mean, we don't even really knew, know everything they were doing. We're, so, we're going to assume most of it's in your head, though. Let's not bop that head around in a yeah. horse and buggy. Oh, they have okay. cars. Yeah. They have cars. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but still. 
Um, so due to the uproar from the community, the medical association appointed a committee to investigate the allegations against the hospital. Many politicians, including the governor and their wives of the politicians, walked around the hospital comparing the conditions to the Nazi concentration camps they had seen when they were in World War II. That's how bad it was. Fucking great. Yeah. So the committee, after... Um, taking that time to investigate, they were also appalled by the conditions of the hospital and they called for widespread reform. Many staff members were fired, including the superintendent. Um, There was a little extra funding that came. Some of that funding was allocated to create six other mental facilities um, by 1967. So by 1968, the number of patients at the hospital had gone down to under 10,000. Well, that's amazing. They actually sound, it sounds like they made some great changes. Yeah. It sucks it was compared to Nazi, but that's what I was thinking in my head. This is all torture and it's not. not, Yeah. And and it's it's just, it's so many things that um, no one's being held accountable for. And if you're not being held accountable, I mean, people get away with so much. Hello, Epstein. Hello. Hello. From the grave. Goodbye. Uh, so while his expose, expose did a good job highlighting the problem, there were many laws that were also sort of made in haste. So they kind of created other problems. Jimmy Carter, once the governor of Georgia and uh, one time president of the United States, was um, a mental health advocate. Along with his wife, he encouraged the hospitals to get patients back into society rather than making the hospital uh, the long term solution. In 1963, the Community Mental Health Act was passed under JFK. Um, this provided funds to healthcare facilities, which, again, like uh, Jimmy Carter, was aimed at getting patients out of the hospitals and into the world. The downside was there was no training to the staff on how to prepare patients for life outside the hospital walls. Oh, that's got to be a tough transition. So this is where we are still having issues today. So many patients that had been at the hospital for years were being released, but they had nowhere to go. And unfortunately, way too many family members were not claiming patients that had been sent there. So they were left to fend for themselves on the street. And this is something that in 2022, we are still dealing with um, that is especially prevalent in places like Los Angeles. It wasn't until the 1960s that there were more advocates for mental health and people actually starting to listen now. So that, of course, is Jack Nelson. Um, Bill Baldini, he did the expose on Penhurst, which was the Asylum from American Horror Story season two. Mm. Um, they have their own horrific story that I'm sure will be covered at a later date, but I cannot do asylums back to back. Me neither. Yeah. And Geraldo Rivera's 1972 expose on Willowbrook. People really didn't know. Willowbrook Mall? No. I'm just kidding. That, that is a local mall here in Houston. No. This, a local mall that went downhill this since is, our, it's heyday. <laughs> no, it, you need to watch. The, actually, um, this in April 2022, I know it was 2022, was the 50th anniversary of his expose on Willowbrook. So they did like a uh, recap or whatever you call it, um, where they interviewed him again. Um, those videos are horrific because they showed a lot more in the 1970s. I mean, you had literally had journalists that were near the battlefields in uh, the Vietnam War, so they just showed a lot more on TV. Yeah. Willowbrook was horrific, and it's primarily kids. So I'm not oh even sure gosh. I can cover that one just because it, it's such such a horrible situation. <sighs> I can't deal with human torture. I mean, uh, most normal people can't, but... Um, yeah, I won't fault you for that. It so, would be a very different... You would have a different host if that was what the podcast was about. 
I would not be here. Fair enough. No, I can't dive into that and do the research on that all the time because that's so depressing. Those who can compartmentalize, car- you know, compartmentalize. I, thank you. <laughs> that that can do that and are you know great people as well. You know, good. Great for you. I wish I was like that. Oh, Lainey is highly emotional. I'm super emotional. So without these sort of exposés, people really weren't advocating as much for mental health because they didn't know all the issues that were going on inside the hospital. Fortunately, also around this time, there have been many drugs that have allowed people to function in society outside of asylums. And there are laws in place to help protect people from getting put into a mental hospital for little to no reason. 1975, uh, the Supreme Court case of O'Connor versus Donaldson ruled that a state cannot confine a non-dangerous person who is capable of living on their own. Mental illness could not be the only reason to keep a person in a hospital on a long-term basis. That's so, good news. Yes, again, horrific things had to happen to get to that point, but now you can't just be put in an asylum just to be put in an asylum because you're some burden on somebody. Yeah, those crazy husbands and jealous neighbors. Yeah. Can't just now they have you off. They have to deal with you. The unfortunate outcome was that even more budget cuts were made to mental health care facilities, severe staff shortages, and unnecessary and preventable deaths of patients. Um, Another expose came out in 2007 called A Hidden Shame from the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, which led towards another movement towards uh, proper care for for people that suffer from mental illness. At this point in 2010, the hospital stopped accepting new patients, and they had approximately 30 patients left and were officially shut down and what they were doing in 2010. So what exactly was the final reason for shutdown? Um, were there no- well, ultimately, they can't hold hold people that are non-dangerous for no reason. So today, there are behavioral hospitals and mental hospitals, but they are yeah. not meant for long-term living. Um, there are group homes and stuff that people have. And they, they were they were trying to push that. Like, there's, there's essentially a space for everybody, but somebody who's severely mental cha- mentally challenged, their parents or whomever can't. Uh, take care of them any longer. They can be in a community or group home or something like that, that they don't need to be in an asylum. Yeah, I guess with today now we have, you know, rehabs for people who need drug and alcohol rehab and we have hospice for people with dementia. Exactly. So So you don't need to all house them in one area together. There is a cemetery on the property. There were 2,000 grave markers to memorialize those that died there, but that's actually a really small number because there are 25,000 unidentified bodies buried uh, were with unmarked graves. Um, many of these markers were removed by prison inmates in the 1990s that were serving time so they could mow easier. So they actually find, found a pile of stakes like 15-ish years later, which I'm like, so no one's even looking at this cemetery every now and then? It took you 15 years to notice that they were taking the stakes out of the ground? Well, it seems like, unfortunately, the people that died there didn't matter anyways. Yeah, there's um, there's, a, there's a lot of different... I, you know, I find that these state-funded hospitals, it's actually not easy to find all the information on it because... They don't want everything to get out. So by a politician, he was saying that they were all given proper burials, even if uh, family never claimed their bodies. I don't know because I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I do believe the government likes to cover up any of their misdeeds. Yeah, and so, you can't trust every politician. Yeah, so I'm not saying that's right, that, you know, that's right or wrong as far as the information goes, but 
supposedly they were all buried with dignity. But if you take a visit to this property, you could easily be walking on the final resting place of a former patient. Uh, today, several of the buildings are dilapidated and deteriorating. There are bus tours to visit around the property, but it's mostly closed to the public. Some remaining parts of the property are now a maximum security forensics facility and a behavioral hospital. To become a patient, you basically have to be referred by the, straight, the state's criminal justice and correction systems. Four buildings are being used as basically prisons, which is essentially what they were to begin with. There were, this information was confusing. There were 180 patients once housed there. I'm not sure how many there are today, but they were all found by the courts to be not guilty by reasons of insanity or incompetent to stand trial. So that it's more supposed to be for what you might call the criminally insane. Um, otherwise, this property is mostly abandoned. Um, and to end this, mental health today is not where it should be. And post-COVID, many people now suffer from more agoraphobia, anxiety, depression. Um, in 2014, there were 356,000 prisoners that had severe mental illnesses, which is 10 times the amount they actually have in state hospitals. Oh, man. So really, today's prisons were just yesterday's asylums. Um, the problem hasn't really been solved. It's just been rebranded. Uh, so my hope is something in this episode spoke to you. We all need to be more cognizant of this issue and encourage our lawmakers to develop a better plan to deal with the root of the problem, which is still finding treatments, proper care, and safe places for people to go that may help prevent them from going to prison or becoming homeless in the first place. Well, I think that sentence you just said of today's prisons are yesterday's asylums that really got me i made that up myself too that was really great that's such a sad way to think about it but it's true it is um it, it's not to say that there aren't people with mental illnesses doing things that are wrong but they're also never properly being taken care of maybe they've never been properly taken care of by family or anybody i used to work at a uh, alternative school, I'll say, more like a discipline campus. And it just saw these situations all the time. It, th that there's just the school system, nobody is doing what they need to be doing for these kids that turn into adults. And we're just, it, it, it's a cycle, unfortunately. It's a vicious cycle. And it's really ugly to continuously watch this happen over and over again. It's, it's tough. And, you know, we're going to talk about tough subjects like this and, and racism and every human life matters. I just hope everyone knows that. It's an unfortunate piece of our history. It just, it's such a bummer. I hope we talk about some, like, stupid ghost next time. <laughs> <laughs> the German-speaking ghost was better than this. <laughs> it's just so upsetting. And you know what? Periods suck, okay? They're already uncomfortable and painful. At least we're not going to an asylum at least, for it. At people. least your mans can't send you to the asylum for menzies that aren't on a proper cycle. Yeah. So yeah. with that, let's end it there that we're, um, congratulations, women. You can now just irritate your man to no end and you can't be sent anywhere for that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Haunted Real Estate. Thank you guys for listening. Um, you can find us on Instagram at haunted.real.estate. And let me try to get it right this time. Haunted R-E, which stands for real estate. Haunted R-E pod 
at gmail.com. Correct. We'd be happy to hear a haunted real estate story, or if you have something in your town or your area you want us to cover, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. I would love to hear some stories of home you've lived in and you've been, you know, scared shitless. So send in some awesome stories to our Gmail. Yes. Um, And with that, I'm Ashley. Thank you for listening. I'm Lainey. Always a pleasure. Goodbye.